morning, ladies and gentlemen, and you are tuning in to Anchored. Anchored is a new ministry of Peoria Christian School where we gather the PCS Bible team to provide biblical commentary and the claims of the culture. We know that the tides of culture ever change, so as the people of God, as local churches, and as Christian families, we must remain anchored in God's Word. You are in studio with your faithful host, Justin Rumley, and if you haven't tuned in to Anchored before, you are in for a treat this morning. We will get to my special guest here in a second, but if you caught our last episode of Anchored, you know that we are in a series talking about different uh, apologetic responses to the culture in terms of God's existence. In our previous episodes, I briefly outlined four major arguments for God that uh, in our Bible classes here at PCS, we were interacting with and having our students do some in-depth research on. And as promised, uh, I looked over our uh, scholarly uh, research our students did, and uh, I found a few that stood out to me in terms of their research, in terms of their articulation of the argument, and I wanted to have them on the show. So uh, today we have our very first special guest on the show. Uh, William Jackson is his name. William, welcome to Anchored. Hi. Um... I'm a junior here at PCS, and I'm the president of the Student Council, and I wrote about the uh, the moral argument for God. Well, William, I appreciate you taking some time out of your very busy presidential schedule uh, to join us here in studio, but I am excited that you actually wrote about the moral argument for God. I know out of the four arguments, most students chose uh, the teleological or the cosmological, which tend to be the more, I guess, simplified uh, bite size type arguments, the more easy to use arguments for God. So I was very pleased to read through your paper when you chose to interact with a, a deeper discussion in terms of an argument for God, which is uh, the moral argument. Now, William, if you could very briefly just kind of go through your paper for us, walking through your argumentation, uh, what did you find so persuading about this discussion of morality? And maybe if you could uh, share with our listeners just what is so effective about your approach here to showing God's existence. Sure. So at the beginning of my paper, I um, talk about uh, how in nature we see a lot of um, animals killing and eating other animals and how uh, most reasonable people would say that that's just natural. Yet we would say that killing and eating humans is clearly wrong. So there's an obvious like double standard there. So we have to have some sort of a sense of morality And yet, if you look throughout history, we see a lot of cases of evil people, such as, um, you know, Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin committing mass atrocities, especially in, um, you know, the last 100 years or so. Uh, You know, in the some of these great genocides, we see 70 million people or so um, killed in a period of only 40 years. So we, we obviously know that that's wrong and we know that there's something wrong there, and yet there's not a clear answer for that uh, in atheism or in, in any other worldview except for um, a theistic worldview, mm-hmm. such as Christianity, where we see very clearly outlined in the Ten Commandments and throughout the Bible that murder and, and genocide is clearly wrong. I actually really appreciated how you began this paper and how you started this conversation. Because ultimately, as you mentioned, William, you talked about the clashing of worldviews. And one aspect I know in class we've been discussing is that the legitimacy of a worldview is dependent on its ability to be consistent with itself. And you right off the bat, I think, uh, hit the crux 
of the issue. Uh, you mentioned here just in the first sentence, if a lion hunts, kills, and eats a gazelle, is it doing anything wrong? The simple answer is, as all reasonable people would agree, is no. The tiger is just being a tiger. It's just acting on its natural animal instincts. And here initially you set off this contrast where you pointed out in our discussion that if an animal eats another animal, we shrug our shoulders. Maybe it's kind of tough to look at, but we don't put that tiger in jail. Yeah. Right. But if you found a person, right, a human being here in Peoria, uh, hunting down another person and, uh, heaven forbid, uh, consuming him or her for dinner, we wouldn't shrug our shoulders. Right. Yeah. So, so what you're pointing out, and I think this is absolutely huge and pivotal is that in the theistic worldview, specifically Christian theism, we have that basis and the ground for saying human beings are special and unique, which includes the reality of a unique moral system that we have to abide by. If we put on another worldview where we're simply a uh, more complex form of animal, why do we shrug our shoulders at a tiger eating a gazelle, but don't shrug our shoulders at us eating each other, right? There seems to be an inconsistency here. So I guess, William, let me probe your mind a, a little further here. So now, now, how long have you been going to PCS for, William? Uh, three years now. Okay, okay. So is it fair to say that you've grown up in a Christian environment? Yeah, I'd say so. My family's uh, all Christian, and um, yeah. Okay, fantastic. So uh, maybe we could just hypothetically have you put on your, uh, we'll just say your agnostic or atheistic lens here. So when you interact with this argument and you say you put on an atheistic lens, uh, what are some ways that you find that the hypothetical atheist version of William would try to account for this morality you speak of if we take away the Christian God? Um, well, I feel that a lot of atheists would probably, um, you know, they would say, obviously, that murder and, um, you know, stealing and all those bad things are, are obviously bad. But really, when you ask them why it's bad, um, you know, there's not a clear answer. So one of the one of the arguments that I put in here is that, um, you know, you can't kill people because that doesn't advance your species. Um, and to that, I say, you know, was Adolf Hitler just advancing, you know, the Aryan race, the Aryan species by, you know, killing those 11 million people in the Holocaust? You know, was Joseph Stalin just advancing um, his superior political ideology by killing another 20 million people in the, the Great Purges? So. Right. I think if I was to join you in this hypothetical worldview switch, um, certainly we would probably try to ground right or wrong in the advancement of species, right? And, and uh, natural selection, uh, evolutionary paradigm, things like that. But then it begs this question, who gets to decide what is the best advancement for our species? Because as you very clearly illustrated, uh, a mere two generations ago, we had uh, someone suggest that a certain type of person uh, deserved to be advanced at the expense of others because, in his opinion, that that was the best way to advance the human species. So ultimately, if we strip away the objective authority and standard of God, who gets to decide? Well, comes down to us at the end of the day, and we can't agree on much of anything. In fact, what, what you're describing, William, you know, we, we tend to think that it's something left in the history books, but it's still something very prevalent today. I mean, we could talk about how eugenics has uh, continued through the 
uh, euphemisms used in abortion and things like that, or even nowadays where uh, we're finding uh, climate change activists are suggesting humanity is actually a detriment on the universe. So maybe there should be less of us because uh, animals are dying out in global warming and things like that. The confusion and disagreement when you strip away the clarity of the biblical worldview is obvious and apparent once you get to the crux of these discussions uh, like this. So William, I guess another question I may have, and if our listeners are, are, are tuning in and paying attention, this question might come across their mind. Um, are you saying that it's impossible for uh, an atheist to be a good person? No, um, but I think it's uh, because that we're created in the image of God, which it very clearly says in um, Genesis 1, 27, that's the earliest I could find that. Um, we're created in God's image, and so we are created with a sense of morality uh, and with a sense of right or wrong. So it, it is, so most atheist people are, I'm sure, good people and don't mean harm, but without... Um, a clear basis for morality without something to look up to, uh, I guess it can be easy to, to get astray as that happened you know, in the last hundred years even. So it seems the way you designed your argument here, it's not necessarily a quote-unquote attack on atheists. It's an attack on atheism, yeah. one would say. It's a worldview clash that you're addressing here and so what you're suggesting is because of the image of god that atheists are intrinsically or in terms of their moral action they certainly can do good things even if their worldview can't explain or account for it yeah okay Uh, well obviously there's um charities founded as um not as theistic charities but as more secular charities and um you know there's countries where there's no um regular there's no main religion or whatever so there's obviously a possibility to be a good person without god in your life but i think that's because god created us in his image so you know god in a way is in their life Yeah, well said. And that's what I appreciate about the students here at PCS, and especially William, is that we merely don't uh, treat the Bible as a academic textbook, but rather it's something we apply to our everyday lives and fundamentally shape our worldview. Because as William suggested there, Scripture is crystal clear. When God created us, he created us in his image. And that's true whether you are a believer or you're an atheist or you're a Muslim or you were a pagan 3,000 years ago. The image of God certainly is, in a sense, uh, disoriented when we're outside of Christ, as Christ provides clarity on that. But we recognize that even our, our, our non-believing neighbors, they have a sense of wanting to be a good neighbor, right? That's reflective of the image of God on them in their life. And I think that's true, too, why, you know, we see tigers hunt down gazelles, well, uh, or even get into other fights with tigers, things like that, and eat each other. It's like, well, you know, animals don't have the image of God like human beings do. And that's why, too, you don't see your non-believing neighbor running around trying to eat people. It's because we have the image of God on us. So, William, I think a, another aspect to this discussion we should fit on as well is to recognize that there are some boundaries to the moral argument, that there is an intention here. So uh, when we talk about the philosophy of the moral argument, it doesn't necessarily 
uh, prove every aspect of the Christian God. You know, when I read through your paper here, it doesn't necessarily prove the Trinity, we'll say. So I guess when you were going through this moral argument, when you were processing it and doing your in-depth research, uh, reading all those books in the library, uh, I guess when you understand scripture and the moral argument, how do you know, or are there some verses where you would say, you know what, this argument is consistent with the God of the Bible? Well, like any argument, you can't just use um, you can't just use the moral argument to prove the Christian God. Though you can certainly point yourself in that direction, I found that, and especially the Ten Commandments um, in Exodus twenty, we find you know a very clear moral standard. Um, we don't commit murder, we don't commit adultery, and we shouldn't lie or steal, um, which are really basic things that our society. Those are societal values that you know our country is kind of founded on, and that really any country is founded on. You don't kill each other, and you don't steal from people. Um, but like like any other argument, you need to kind of take everything in together, um, you know, and kind of draw conclusions yourself, I guess. And in which case, you look in uh, cases in history. I think the Bible has. Um, is the most credible of any other religious text um, and is the closest to a history book that we ever get in uh, for a religious text, which uh, isn't necessarily a part of the moral argument, but the moral argument certainly backs it up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I appreciated you bringing up the Ten Commandments in your paper as well as other verses here in Exodus and Genesis and so on and so forth, recognizing that within the moral argument paradigm, we have this statement, and I think we should probably get into that here in a second, about why morality, or at least our fundamental moral standard, is objective rather than subjective, um, which I think we'll get into here in a second so we define our terms well. But you demonstrate with clarity that the God of the Bible fits the uh, ideal definition of an objective, unchanging, authoritative, all good, consistent standard uh, that he will judge us by, which is absolutely consistent uh, with the philosophy behind your moral argumentation here. So I guess, William, I use some terms there, objective and subjective morality. Can you briefly provide us maybe a definition for our listener who may not be familiar with the terms objective and subjective? Well, objective is something that is irrefutably true, um, something that everyone agrees with, or something that can't be proven false. Um, for example, the the sky is blue, um, or the grass is green. That's something objective. Uh, subjective is what's true for for one person. So, uh, me saying the pizza is good um, would be a subjective argument because I'm sure there's someone out there that thinks pizza is bad. That works to a degree with morality, with you say that objectively murder is wrong. Um, you, know, you can't argue that. I don't think anyone's ever going to say that murder is right. Um, there's really not any case that you can justify murder. And then I'm, there are you know, more gray, opinionated things that, that would be subjective. So like killing in wartime, I guess you know, is that right or wrong? It's more of a subjective thing. Sure. I, I appreciate that's a good basis for uh, continuing our discussion here. So what I think William is suggesting here is that morality, or at least our standard for morality, is a matter of objective 
reality rather than subjective. As William pointed out, you know, the sky is blue whether you like it or not. I mean, if someone doesn't see it, it the sky is being blue, it's probably because they're colorblind. Something is wrong. Um, it's not a preference claim. Meanwhile, something like ice cream, that is a preference claim or pizza. Um, it is amazing, but believe it or not, some people do not like pizza and they'll probably live longer than I do. Uh, because of it. But there is a difference between a subjective preference and an objective truth. So what William is demonstrating here in his paper and what the moral argument, I think, clearly, uh, definitively shows is that our fundamental standard for right and wrong has to be a part of the objective truth paradigm. Well, how do we know this? Because as William suggested, you probably won't find too terribly many people who say murder is okay. Uh, certainly, you know, there might be some aspects in life where taking another person's life is morally justified, whether it be self-defense or whether it be in wartime, things like that. But uh, killing someone for the sake of killing, you won't really find too many people agree with that. Or even to really bring it close to home, we could say something as in like slavery. Um, slavery, you know, 150 years ago. Uh, I doubt you'd find too terribly many people saying slavery at some point, or at least the race-based type slavery we experience, was morally okay. And I think that really illustrates the problem with the non-theistic worldview. If you strip away God, so, so God would be the objective standard in the Christian system. He's outside of humanity. He has authority over us. He is an unchanging truth that would be our moral standard. Well, if you take that away, then the highest authority truly is humanity itself. Therefore, you have to work out your moral code somehow within yourself or within your community. Therefore, that opens up the door for saying the majority of the culture thinks the Aryan race is supreme. I guess they're not wrong if our highest standard is the majority of the culture or if your standard is your own preference. Well, then suddenly if me and William disagree on on uh, some important moral issue, who gets to decide who's right? There's a fundamental flaw in non-theistic worldviews that the moral argument really points out and uh, demonstrates with clarity. So I guess, William, in our final few minutes here, I think uh, your paper was succinct. I think your paper provided a lot of clarity. Uh, in terms of the moral argument. Hopefully it's something that uh, maybe down the road the Lord will give you opportunities to share this uh, this type of paper with some peers or even some uh, professors in college. But I guess if you could tell our listeners maybe just very succinctly why you chose the moral argument over, say, the teleological or the cosmological or the ontological, what is uh, the real strength here with the moral argument that you saw persuasive? I think the, the main thing is that you can see, well, you can actually apply the moral argument in your everyday life. If you see someone stealing from another person, you clearly know that that's wrong. But not only this, um, you can back it up with um, things in history. Um, for example, like the the great genocides of the, the 20th century, you know, the, the Holocaust in particular, we all know that that's wrong and we can all argue that that's wrong um you know and really the only people that deny that it's wrong are wrong in the head or, <laughs> you know so um it's something that you can definitely apply um, both in your everyday life but also you can look back in history so it's not really something that needs to be argued logically um and, and if you argue against it logically then you know 
I guess you don't believe in a in a moral standard and <laughs> how that would work. Yeah, yeah. So if we don't have a moral standard, then there there's definitely something wrong because that would open the gates for a lot of things like murder and rape. So mm. obviously we do have a higher moral standard, and basically everyone believes in that uh, because there there is an objective morality. Well said, well said, William. I appreciate you sharing your wisdom and the results of your in-depth research with us here on Anchor. And I think that's the beauty of the Christian worldview that William is illustrating for us. Within Christianity, we have consistency and clarity in terms of morality. Uh, The Christian can look at God's word. He can look at the Ten Commandments. He can look at the character of Christ and see a consistent clear moral standard that we all can strive to. This standard is something that will help uh, clarify our own lives in terms of morality. It will help us see things in the culture with clarity. It will help us look through history and recognize where we have uh, stepped uh, in the wrong direction. This consistency and clarity is such a strength of the Christian worldview that makes it supreme and superior over other worldview claims. And that really is the Achilles heel of, at least in this case, atheism. We recognize that our atheist neighbor, they can be good people. They are nice people. And we say you can be a good person in terms of outward moral behavior without believing in God. But we are firm believers that you can't be good without God. Sure, you can outwardly look good without believing in God. But you can't be good without God. We need an objective standard of right and wrong to even know what good is. And unfortunately, in our agnostic culture, they... Uh, kind of have a live hypocritically compared to what they profess. They profess no objective standard, but live as if there is. They profess some things are objectively right and wrong throughout history, yet their worldview cannot account or explain for why that is. Therefore, the lack of consistency, the lack of clarity, the confusion, the disorientation that a non-theistic worldview provides is something that ultimately shows that worldview cannot be valid. And this is what I love about being here at Peoria Christian School, we can have these types of conversations. We can have William on the show and demonstrate that he is well on his way uh, to being a witness for Christ, not only here in Peoria, but wherever the Lord leads him for college. And he may be uh, the president of his junior class now, but maybe he'll be in the White House one day. Either way, I'm glad that he is equipped with the moral argument for God. And that is what we are passionate about here at Peoria Christian School, ensuring and training the next generation of Christian believers of the church to remain anchored in God's word. William, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I'll have to have you on again one day. I have a feeling that our our listeners are going to want you back for a second round. And I want to thank you for tuning in to Anchored uh, this morning. And I can't wait to see what the Lord has in store next time. God bless. God bless.